Hello, this is Hardin Coleman, Faculty Director for the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development, which has been for 30 years, has been focused on these issues related to what is the role of, of, of taking, of growing one's ability to take uh, strong personal stances with a real eye to how to improve the quality of their life and those of others and the relationship between who am I in my world and how do I take responsibility for the social world to improve it and create conditions in which all people and all children can flourish. And that is our, our focus and, and, and uh, right now the center is, is uh, working on creating communities of conversations around what it means to to uh, be caring, uh, have character, and uh, create community and, and, and give examples of people who are doing that work. And as those of you had the opportunity to read uh, Ms. Garza's work, this is key to the work that she does. She really has taken a focus on how to uh, build communities, particularly communities that have historically been dis disenfranchised for opportunities to power, and how can we, they can start working together across a wide, diverse range of belief and platforms. I think one of the things that uh, we want to take away from today is the understanding that, uh, that in, in this polarized society in which we are living, that there are people who are trying to work and bring those communities together and Ms. Garza's work is a good example and model for uh, driving that conversation, even um, as she has particular populations that she is dedicating her work to. Ms. Garza, delight to have you here. And so for other people who are joining in, um, Ken Elmore, um, uh, Dean Elmore has agreed to facilitate this conversation. So I'm gonna turn over Dean Elmore is our Dean of Students here at the BU Willow College of Education and has a long history of helping this uh, institution uh, move forward in a way that uh, is more inclusive of multiple identities, multiple students, and, and, and has focused on a caring. My favorite quote for Ken is when he talks to uh, new faculty and who are in their in the new introduction. And he says, he stops and says, well, there's one, the most important thing we need from you. And he pauses, as you can see all these new faculty kind of lean forward is love our students. And that, that is the key thing that faculty needs to do. And it sets the tone for what I think this university aspires to do, which is not only to be a great place for intellectual development, but a community of learning and a safe place to be. And I say aspire because we know that we fall short in many ways. And part of uh, Dean Elmore's role is to um, facilitate both the, the aspirations and care for those who are not meeting, getting met, their needs are not fully met. So Ken, I would love if you would uh, take over and introduce and facilitate this next part of our, our, our seminar. Fantastic. Uh, Alisa, you'll have, to, uh, you'll have to pardon me if I start to be a little bit of a fanboy, if I start to geek out a little bit. This is like an incredible honor when uh, Hardin asked me if I could do this. So um, I, I hope I can do the honors and do everyone some honor here. Um, you, you are us on, some, on so many levels and you give all of us on the screen some, something important here. Um, you have a group of people here, of course, primarily rooted in education, but they are professionals and activists. We talk about taking strong stands and improving lives. 
being uh, having an understanding of who we are really for each other and what our responsibilities might be as professionals and as personal and personally for the society. And of course, we are dying to always think about how we create communities. So uh, we see you as one of those incredible examples of that in our lives. And, um, you know, I know for me, part of why this is such an honor is uh, I've always said Alicia Garza knows how to take next steps. Alicia Garza also knows about healing, in particular Black healing. And I see so much of your work as being about healing and, of course, community and everything else. So I'd love to just give a quick introduction and see if I can incorporate some of these conversations and questions we've been having along the way, if that's all right. That sounds great. And thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. So we all have been looking at uh, your, your book, The Purpose of Power, and uh, how we come together when we fall apart. And for me, that's about solidarity. I think that is just a, a statement about solidarity. We all know, or maybe people don't know, that uh, Alicia is the founder of Black Futures Lab. And uh, people describe you as an innovator, a strategist, and an organizer. We know that you are one of the co-creators of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Uh, but also, I think folks are not aware that you've also been a strategy and partnership director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance as well, and co-founder of Supermajority. And you're from Oakland. And I love that you call yourself a cheeseburger enthusiast as well. I am. I am. <laughs> All right. So uh, welcome. And thank you for being with us overall. You know, I, I guess what I'd love to do is just to start with, I'm, I'm going to go sort of in reverse. I, I, I do a few things for you to take a look at. But I heard someone say today, how do you keep a sense of hope? Because you, you seem to elude that, exude that. So that was my how point. do you do that? Mm. Well, first, let me say thank you for the opportunity to come and dialogue with you all today. Um, I am talking to you now from um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, which is um, full of trees and snow in April. <laughs> and um, bear with me for a second, because this is getting to the answer to your question. Of course. Um, I am not always hopeful. Um, and I think it's just important to say that. I, I do think I have a disposition of um, future forward thinking and um, never being satisfied with um, how much progress we've made or how far we've come. And I hope that that does come across as hope. Um, for me, sometimes it is um, really a feeling of like, are we ever going to get there? <laughs> so maybe it's impatience. Um, but in general, I, I think that the cultivation and the maintenance of hope requires a few things. Um, one, it requires the ability to acknowledge when you're just not there. Um, I think there is sometimes a pressure, particularly for people um, who spend so much of their time on social change to be hopeful and always be feeling like things are um, moving forward. And the fact of the matter is you don't always feel that way. And I think we just need to have more conversations about that. Mm -hmm. The other piece though, is really about the maintenance of our own wellness. And I don't talk about this so much as self-care because I think the conversation there has been very distorted to, you know, try and combat 
fear or desperation or anxiety or grief and sadness with like bubble baths or, you know, yoga or massages and things like that. And we should do those things. They're good for you. They're good for your body. They're good for your nervous system. Um, But I think we don't pay enough attention to the maintenance of a regular practice of coming back to what you're here to do and why, what's your why. And for me, whenever I don't feel hopeful, um, I come back to, well, what is it that I'm doing this for? Why am I doing this? I could be doing anything. I don't have, I'm not stuck here, right? I could be, uh, I think my happy place, if I'll just share is um, uh, naming nail polishes and lipsticks for a living. I think I'm always like, Uh, uh, I could be doing that. uh, uh, (laughs) Right? Like I don't have to be doing what I'm doing, but um, naming lipsticks and nail polishes for a living doesn't feed me the way that, I'm trying to figure out how to make black communities powerful in every aspect of our lives feeds me. And so there are things that I have to do every day to bring me back to that. Um, And for everybody, it's going to be different for me. um, You know, I I have to get in good belly laughs every day because I I have to remind myself um, that the work is serious and it's important, but I don't have to be serious all the time. for me, it involves paying attention to my like wellness and my sleeping and my eating, my drinking water and my moving my body. Um, and then the other piece of it for me, honestly, is about maintaining a community of people around me um, who care about the things that I do. Um, and not in terms of like, they care about what I'm doing, but they care about the same things that I do. And um, that is important because you know, it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> when one of us is not feeling so hopeful, <laughs> somebody else is actually feeling hopeful and maybe we just need to tap into their energy for a bit. So that's that's some of my um, well-kept secrets in terms of how I maintain hope. Wow. Well, you know, and your conversation about maintaining that hope sort of gets to, I think, the secrets of, or at least some some things that are really prescriptive in terms of thinking about, how I engage in change, how I think about the real work. I, I love that you said that you've, you've got to do some work too about putting a community around you or being in a community, that takes work. Mm-hmm. Uh, being around people who you can engage with a little bit. Um, these, these are sort of these rules that are pretty important for being effective. So, you know, there are these questions and you've got a lot of folks who deal with young people, teachers who are in this space as well. And there was this really interesting conversation that came up about how we raise or teach or work with young folks so that they can have an efficacy in engaging in change. Mm -hmm. And here's where the real rub came in or the real question came in. You know, do we, is divisiveness an important part of this conversation, dealing with divisiveness, uh, or is it about always seeking to uh, be in a be in a space where you've got to compromise, where you work together, where you have to be on the common ground? So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Hmm. You know, honestly, I, I think um, maybe we're not asking the right questions. Hmm. Um, when it comes to young people in particular, it's not so much... Uh, what do we talk about and what do we not? Because then, frankly, we should be talking about everything. Um, young people are sponges and 
um, are often grappling with the same questions that we are, and they're seeing a lot of things. But because we are so anxious about framing conversations for young people, conversations that we think they can handle or, you know, absorb, um, we may be missing um, the opportunity to just like listen to what they're seeing and hearing and feeling and help them make sense of it. Um, or acknowledge, hey, it just, just doesn't make sense. I don't know either. <laughs> and so like the fascination with curating and cultivating conversations for young people can sometimes get in our way. Um, we absolutely have to be talking about divisiveness. We have to be talking about ways to come together, but we have to be putting it in context. Um, you know, the best education that I ever received um, as a young person was the education that was necessary to understand the conditions around me and to put any of those questions inside of a, a framework that helped me understand why a thing was happening. Um, you know, the, the best training that I got as a young person was media literacy, right? Mm -hmm. And learning how to discern fact from fiction. Um, understanding, right, that there was a lot of fiction out there, that not everything I read um, right. is fact. Um, right. Some of the best education that I've gotten uh, has been rooted in helping me understand um, the lineage of debates, um, because these are ongoing, right? <laughs> We're having the same fights that we've been having for a long time. It's just a different day, um, you know, whether it be about abolition or whether it be about, um, you know, uh, do we, uh, some people call it censorship, right? And some people call it values. It just depends, right? right? Um, you know, conversations about reproductive justice and freedom, conversations about, you know, democracy, right? And we need to be engaging young people in those discussions, but for them to actually engage and for us to um, follow through on our mission of like not trying to tell people what to think, but also kind of trying to tell people what to think. I think we need to make sure that we're giving people tools. So rather than issues, we need tools. Um, we need tools to understand history and how it plays out today. We need tools to understand how to critically think. Um, and unfortunately, academia doesn't always do that. Um, my what? Training, what? Really? I know. I know my training in the academy has been varied. Um, you know, I do know how to do academic writing. And I also feel like I got taught a lot about how to regurgitate other people's thoughts and not create my own. Um, I do know how to engage in debates, but I didn't learn how to not take those debates personally. Um, I was taught things that um, were fairy tales in a lot of ways, like, um, journalism is neutral. No, it's not neutral. It's mm. absolutely not neutral. We should stop saying that. Mm. Um, what is this fascination with neutral journalism? There's no such thing and there never has been, right? And that's a historical debate. But we need people to be equipped with the tools to be able to participate in today's society. And too many of our young people are not equipped with those tools. And so we lose them and then we lament about having lost them, but we didn't actually do the work to give them the tools in their toolbox to be able to forge new paths and help us actually learn more. Right. So that's, that's where I would weigh in on that. 
Got you. So I love how you talk about the history of the debate. I think that's really important. And I, I, I must admit, I was struck in your book how you showed lineage. You know, I, I know about your mama. I know about mm-hmm. how you grew up. And also to put that some context about who you are and how you develop about who you are and how you hold that, but you're still moving along and changing some things. You know, a lot of times people will say that it is really hard to get people to think about history and to do, again, more a part of the work. And that is to understand the history of the debate. You know, what about the tools for that? I think that a lot of folks who are in this educational space, um, as you say, forget about that or don't pay attention to it, but probably want to, but need to find a way to think about that. Some thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you I genuinely mean, one, quite a bit to history. No, it's I, a lot, but I, I appreciate the, the first thing that just came to mind is that we are having an intense uh, struggle over history and who gets to tell it and what history we get to tell and, you know, from whose perspective. And that is the culmination of generations of work to tell fuller, more complex stories. And we shouldn't abandon that. And I see us doing that a little bit. Um, We're so enmeshed in the conversation about what is critical race theory, (laughs) right? And where is it being taught, right? That we forget to talk about um, the lineage. Why is critical race theory even a thing? And um, when you do that, right, all of the nonsense around it today makes plenty of sense. But there are so many people who don't have the tools to understand the lineage that they're only having half the conversation. Um, And this isn't at all to say that people are stupid or unintelligent. That's not true. Um, What's true is that people can only work with what they know. Um, And in as much as we can broaden the conversation to um, go further than academics and theorists, right? The better for all of us. Um, How do we popularize lineage? Um, You know, I I talk in my book about the fairy tales that we tell about history. Um, You know, the fairy tale that Rosa Parks woke up one day and decided she wasn't gonna move to the back of the bus. Um, You know, there's so many stories like that. Um, that have been popularized in our society, and they are the stories that people know. And so therefore, um, people think that we've already solved problems that we have not. Uh, People think that they cannot be a part of solving the problems that we have in our society um, because they don't see themselves in those stories. Um, And we also have a challenge by which um, we continue to understand systems of violence and oppression as Um, interpersonal conflict where people are being mean to each other. Um, Racism has nothing to do with people being mean to each other. There are very nice people who are racist. Um, Same thing with sexism, same thing with homophobia, right? Like any of these um, systems of segregation um, can involve very nice people who are well-meaning and well-intentioned, but they have been um, shaped, right? Um, To see the world in a particular way. So with that being said, um, our work is to get literate in how we make things make sense for people. And um, 
I'm not trying to slam the academy here, but like I had to unlearn a lot of things. Um, The academy is focused on steel sharpening steel. That's not a bad thing, but it's like you get into the, like the hair that is like 0.005 of an inch, right? And we're building whole cannons on top of the the splitting of hairs. When actually the whole point, right, is to make this information as accessible as possible so that it itself can be revolutionized over and over and over again. Not just the job of the academy to produce knowledge. Um, knowledge is produced everywhere and it's produced through experience. It's produced through um, exposure, right? Observation, participation, all of these things. And we need to be paying more attention to um, how do we widen and broaden the circles of people who are having these conversations, again, with the tools that they need to participate in a way um, that um, is based on some kind of truth. Right. Not the truth, but some kind of truth. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so, what I'm looking forward to. All right. So walk me through a little bit. Let's 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 reimagine this a bit. You know, I happen to agree a lot of what you said about higher education. What what would it look like, you think? What should it look like? What should high, you know, here I'm in a private education space in a city. Uh, that's got its own history and everything else. What do you think it should look like? Higher ed should look like for people to do, I think what you just said is to make this, these places a little bit more of democratic speech, speech environments, uh, of activists, democratic activist spaces, uh, and still produce knowledge and everything else. But what would that look like? Well, first and foremost, it looks like admitting different and new people. Um, this is another debate we've had for such a long time, admissions, right? And still eligibility it, mm-hmm. criteria, right? And the recruitment of underrepresented students. You know, we have to do a better job of making sure that we are bringing in people from increasingly diverse backgrounds. And I don't just mean race. I mean experience. I mean class. I mean um, mm-hmm. geography, right? Like, That needs to be our main task and main focus. Too few people have access to these halls. Too few, too few. And so therefore, if we want to encourage the replication and dissemination of new ideas, you got to bring in new people. (laughs) And teachers. So it's not just in terms of students. It's also um, in terms of who is holding space around these and bringing these containers of learning together. And this has been a long debate inside of um, the academy as well. And I think it often gets framed as, um, oh God, how do we talk about it? People often talk about it as like some kind of like diversity of thought, which usually means, right? That you bring on people who are inflammatory um, and you say, okay, well, We've brought in diversity of thought, right? (laughs) Um, But that's not actually what we're working with here. And I I feel like um, we would be wise to kind of push back against that. What we, it's not about bringing out, bringing in people who are so far out there, right? That we just assume that because they have a, a radically different opinion about how the world functions, um, that that somehow is creating a more um, 
um, inclusive or uh, rigorous environment. And that's a very dangerous uh, assumption and assertion to make. And in fact, I feel sometimes like it's kind of hiding behind um, the, the, the truth, which is that institutions also have a point of view. Our universities have a point of view. You cannot be sending brochures out to students about your diversity when you're bringing people in who are against diversity. Like that is not, um, it's a red herring conversation and we need to call it out as it is. We need to make education accessible to more people. Um, But accessibility doesn't mean find somebody really extreme and call it a day. Right, right. So, you know, the thing that we uh, do appreciate about you is the way that you have been wonderful at connecting uh, these thoughts, these movements, um, people, identities, uh, to, to help a lot of people see that our struggles can have some connections with each other. Um, that has got to be hard. Uh, when you are in certain communities and where you may be associated. Now, you know, certainly if people do their reading, they know that you've been doing lots of work in a variety of different spaces, whether it be about poor folk, whether it be about working class folk, whether it be about black folk, women, uh, queer folk, etc. cetera. Uh, but many people latch on to, of course, black folk with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, h- how is that working to really open up what your active voice is about, what you're trying to do, and getting people to see that while there may be these focal points, you've got, I think, more of a universal look at struggles that are out there. Mm. Yeah, Um, I think um, what is true is for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, um, I have really been focused on Black folks, Mm -hmm. and I do that intentionally. And Black people are not a monolith. And so, yes, in that space, I can be doing work around workers' rights um, and labor. I can be doing work around poverty and economic exclusion. I can be doing work around gender. I can be doing work around sexuality. Because everything that's happening in the world impacts Black people. Um, and And it impacts us uniquely and differently. And Um, Black people are impacted by every system of segregation that you can possibly imagine. And so that's why that work and moving between those arenas is necessary. I can't, um, you know, organize in a community around environmental racism and destruction without also organizing around poverty, without also organizing around workplace justice, without also organizing around gender. Um, It's literally impossible literally impossible. I mean, who lives next to toxic sites? Usually poor and working class people. Um, What are poor and working class people doing, right? What is the work that poor and working class people are doing? It's often in workplaces um, that are not unionized and that are not regulated. Um, You know, why are these workplaces not regulated or uh, unionized? Well, because there's a massive attack on unions um, and the labor movement by corporations and um, uh, the financial industry, right? Because it doesn't serve uh, the interests of profit. Um, And so, you know, and then why aren't people doing anything about it? Well, because people are being barred from participating in creating and changing the rules that govern their lives every single day. I mean, again, we have to tell more complex stories. And I am, 
not apologetic in any way about um, working with Black communities. It is um, my community. And um, certainly it is where I feel like I can have the most impact and um, be the most effective. However, my hope is that in um, not being issue focused, but being community focused, that it is also um, a model for other communities, right? To um, not feel like they have to be siloed into issues that um, we isolate, but our communities don't isolate them in that way. Um, our communities do not uh, see the, the, the difference between labor rights, right? And racial justice, like folks see them right, uh, right. very much as the same thing. I like that issue community focus as opposed to just solely issue focus. I love it. So talk to us a little bit about Black Futures Lab. Oh, yeah. Your work right now. Talk to us a bit. I took a survey and all that. Hey, sort of thank you for I taking gave, the Black Futures. I gave you a couple center. dollars, everything yeah, else. But, uh, but talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, this is my baby. Um, I'm really proud of this work. I started this organization. It was an idea that I kind of held on to, kind of like my naming nail polishes and lipsticks idea. Um, <laughs> it was my happy place during the 2016 election um, uh, where it was just so chaotic and there was so much at stake. And I kept saying, okay, if I can get through this, um, what I'm going to do on the other side is I'm going to build a vehicle that is focused on translating symbol into substance for black communities as it comes to politics. Mm -hmm. And too often black folks are spoken about, but we're not spoken to about the issues that matter most to us. Um, and we get presented with a lot of symbolic overtures that rarely result in any material changes. And that is not a reason to disengage. It's a reason to lean in harder and to fight harder. And so that's what we do at the Black Futures Lab. We work to make Black communities powerful in politics so we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. And the way that we do that is by building the capacity of our communities to fight and win. Um, some of the work I'm most proud of um, over the last four years uh, now, four years in February, is um, our Black Public Policy Institute, where we train Black grassroots leaders how to write, win, and implement new rules in cities and states. We literally are training people how to write and win policy. Um, we had our first policy victory last year where we got the governor of California to sign a bill that was designed in our policy institute by the Young Women's Freedom Center, which essentially um, revises sentencing guidelines for people who have been convicted of crimes that they were coerced into as a result of um, domestic violence, um, intimate partner violence, et cetera. Um, we, and I'm so, I'm super excited about that. And we're on our second cohort right now that is about to graduate in a week. Um, and they have spent September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, eight months with us, um, learning all the ins and outs of policy, being mentored by uh, folks who move policy across the country, um, and really reimagining not just what rules govern our lives, but how we can reimagine the democracy that governs our lives as well. Um, and we'll be kicking off a new cohort uh, in September. Wow. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. I'm excited about our Black Census Project, 
which aims to collect recent and relevant data about Black communities and who we are and what we care about and what we want to see done about the challenges we face in our communities. Um, our first census was done in 2018. We launched our organization with this project and um, we were able to accomplish being the largest survey of Black people in America since Reconstruction. We relaunched that program um, this year and we're reaching to be the largest survey of Black people in history, uh, gathering 200,000 responses from Black folks in all 50 states. Um, so we're super stoked about that. And um, if you haven't taken the Black Census, please do so at blackcensus.org. I'm also really proud of our work to motivate, educate, and activate Black voters across the country. In 2020, we talked to a million Black voters in our very first field program during COVID. Wow. <laughs> and wow. we are continuing, we've been continuing to do that work in between and, and at the same time as election cycles this year. We're focused um, through our C4 organization on secretary of state races and governor's races um, and making sure that our communities have the tools we need um, to put people in place who um, match the agenda that we have for our communities. So we're stoked about that. Um, and I will also just say one of the things I'm also really proud of um, is that we've grown our team from two people with a dream uh, to 15 folks who come from every background you could possibly imagine. It is a joy to work in an organization of Black people, about Black people, by Black people, where every single one of us is passionate about changing the rules that impact our lives every day. And every single one of us is not willing to give up, um, no matter how dire our circumstances may be. Um, we are all very committed um, to making sure that nobody gets left behind. Um, so that's what we're working on. Got you. So I love that, you know, again, I hope people see this is that example. People will often ask, um, other than voting, what's activism look like? And I think that you, you just laid that out in so many ways uh, about that. And, you know, I'm going to do a pitch. We're doing a lot of work here about data science. Mm -hmm. And we are also, of course, you know, Ibram Kendi is here. Yes. And also that data and data science and particularly about black folk comes together. So I hope that you have this. Um, I hope you have. This, I hope we have this opportunity to get you here and to work with you. Uh, and, and the training program just sounds like something a lot of students here would vibe with. Yes, please. So, so I want to do this. I want to ask you, I want to ask Harden Coleman to get on because I want you to ask this question. Harden, hop on. Great, Ms. Garza. So, um, um, thank you so much for being here. This is very exciting. We've been looking forward to this uh, a great deal. And the questions that um, so I'm I'm a I, I'm a I train school counselors and I'm a psychologist. And so I, as much as I think about the ecological large picture, a lot of my work is around the individual development. Yep. And so one of the questions I like to ask people who are engaged in in, in your type of work is. What's the, how do you think about the role of character, both your own character development mm. and the character development of others as part of your work, foundational, mm. tangential. So as you come in, as you're bringing people in, interns in, creating an organization, how do you think, what, what does character and its role mean to you as you, because it's more explicit about the ethic of caring that you've demonstrated, 
the focus of community be demonstrated, but what's the role of character in your work? Or not at all? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it has to be. No, it's central. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was looking forward to this conversation this last week. I've spent um, having my character attacked um, pretty wide in a pretty widespread way. And so I've been thinking a lot about um, the importance of character and integrity and what it means to us. Um, and forgive the pop culture reference, but all week I've been having in my head, uh, you know, Tina Turner's famous line when she divorced from Ike Turner, who was like beating the crap out of her and doing all the worst things to her. And she's in front of the judge, right? And the judge is like, I mean, don't you want any of these assets? And she's like, no, I just want my name. Um, and, you know, that, that, um, that assertion is so deeply important to me. But beyond like the ongoing character attacks that happen to activists all the time um, and to, you know, us from, you know, previous and current iterations of Black Lives Matter, um, character is actually really important in organizing um, and in social change work. And, um, you know, I always say to people that there is very much a difference between activism and organizing and maybe character can be um, included in a litany of qualities um, and activities that distinguish the two. You know, I was talking to a, a friend today about, you know, the difference between service and organizing and service being important work, um, but also being relatively a transactional work, right? You give something that somebody needs, right? <laughs> and they get it, right? And that's kind of the end of the interaction. But in organizing, everything is built on relationships and it's built on whether or not people trust you. It's built on whether or not people trust that you have a vision and trust that um, you can do what you say you're gonna do. Um, I was trained um, in organizing. And one of the major things that we always would say is like, number one, never ask somebody to do something you wouldn't do yourself um, and always follow up and follow through. Yeah. Don't tell people you're going to do something that you don't do. Um, and the reason for that is because organizing is about leveraging relationships for change. Um, it's about building people's capacity to lead, but also their trust in themselves to, to be able to do so. Um, and the relationship between an organizer and others that they are organizing, whether it be in a campaign or any other kind of initiative, is really sacred. Um, it, it's anytime you're learning something new, right, from someone else, you are inherently becoming vulnerable with them. Um, and you're, and you're um, extending trust right? And somebody has to believe in your good character, right? In order to accept whatever it is that you're offering them. And also to be able to show up and participate and um, um, talk about what they know and what they don't know and what they want to learn and what they're scared of, right? Like organizing is like a sacred art, in my opinion. Um, and so the role of character is deeply important. The role of integrity is deeply important. Um, and that is why I also believe that um, these attacks are so um, insidious, right? Because what they go for um, is people's trust in your character, 
trust in your ability to produce the change that you want to see. Um, and it's, it's based in, um, you know, a, a lot of, um, tropes that we have about social change and organizing because we tell so many fairy tales about how change happens. People want things to fall from trees. We look at politics and protest as like, I call it snack machine politics, right? So you put your quarter in, you press B2, you get your Snickers bar and you're on your way. (laughs) And I wish that's what was going on because honestly, um, I'd have more time to name lipsticks and nail polishes for a living, but um, because that's not how it goes, <laughs> you know, we lose a little bit of something in relationship to um, being okay with change being quick and slow. Um, I heard a lot of questions while I was curling my hair, getting ready for y'all. Um, about the, well, how do we do this, right? We now have this moment where people are talking about things we've never talked before and how do we do it? And um, it's just not lost on me that these are the right questions to be asking, but don't be so caught up in those questions that you forget how long it took for us to get here and how threatening it is that we're here. Um, People do not want to have these conversations um, and that is why they are attacking our character. Right. It is why they are saying this is not a person for you to believe. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz. Right. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's my favorite. That's my favorite scene in the movie. And then you pull the curtain back and it's just like this little guy with a microphone on a milk crate. Um, so anyways, not to get off on a tangent here, but um, character, however, is different than personality or brand. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the book, I think. Um, we can assign character to people who haven't earned it. Um, and we can um, take for at face value things that um, we actually should question more of, right? Um, not everybody who says they're an activist is an activist. That's not to say they don't do important things in the world, but words mean things, right? Um, So uh, I I don't know if there's a a step to take except to say um, we need more tools to help us make better decisions about people's characters. And in this age where for the only time in my lifetime, and I I can't remember historically um, when this has ever happened, but I could be wrong not a historian, although I like to think I am. Um, This is the first time that I know of where people who are involved in social change have been elevated to the level of like celebrities, right? Um, And as such, we treat activism and organizing with a celebrity culture lens, um, which is really dangerous. Uh, The work I do doesn't belong on TMZ, right? It is like, the messiness of what happens when people come together and try to accomplish something together and they've never worked together before and everybody brings their own stuff, right? And for a long time, we've been able to do that in private as you should, Um, but now you can't, right? Now you can't do that. You don't get a chance to spend the time to work out disagreements that can last for five years, 10 years, 15 years because it's being plastered all over tabloids. Right. 
Um, and of course, again, there is um, an agenda there, um, which is to get people to question the character of our movements, the legitimacy of them, the honesty and integrity of them. Um, and it's not lost on me, right? The timing of how those things happen. Um, this easily could have happened last year in the midst of a new administration, but it did not. Um, it's happening uh, on the brink of the next midterm election, right? Where um, the conversations that this movement has advanced around policing and safety, um, around democracy and governance um, are a point of deep consternation for people who like the way that things are right now. Um, so anyways, end rant on that, but um, thank you for the question. It's all right, that's all right. You know, I once heard you talk about power versus empowerment. Uh, mm. And, you know, I think it works really well here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I had the, I, so I'm in the Pacific Northwest this week um, to train young organizers here, Black and Latino organizers. And we had a long conversation yesterday about power and empowerment. You know, I define power as the ability to make the rules and change the rules. Um, and there's multiple forms of power that are um, operating at any given time. And there's multiple forms of power that we need to be building at any given time. But ultimately, it's fundamentally about the ability to make the rules and change the rules. And empowerment is something quite different. Empowerment, um, the way I define that is our ability to feel good inside of our current circumstances. Feel good about ourselves, feel good about our world. You know, I do a lot of Superman poses in the mirror before I do things like this, right? I'm like, <laughs> I'm feeling good. You know what I mean? I can do this, right? I get my power stance on. Um, and that's great. That's totally great. But when I walk outside my front door, um, I'm reminded of all the ways in which I don't get to make the rules about the way that my life is organized and determined. Um, and that is what power is really about. Um, and so I make the distinction because I think oftentimes um, when we're talking about social change, and I'm saying this from experience, when I decided this is what I was going to spend my time on, my parents were like, oh my God, this must be a phase. We did not send you to college to do these things. We sent you to college because we wanted you to be a lawyer or a teacher or, you know, I wanted to be an architect at some point. I guess I kind of made it, but not in the traditional way. Right. right. <laughs> right? But their framework around this work was charity. Mm -hmm. um, and so it naturally involved a lot of assumptions about, you know, she's helping the people that are less fortunate and, you know, that kind of thing. And the assumption there, right, is like, what's where's the career in that? Where's Can you feed a family on that? That's kind of thing. Right. Um, and I don't blame them for that, right? Because that's what most people think. They think Red Cross, UNICEF, that kind of thing. Um, but alongside that framework, right, um, there is an assumption that to change bad things that are happening in the world, people need to feel better about themselves. Mm. So um, I might be poor, but I want to feel good about myself being poor, right? right. <laughs> um, I, I might be being held back because of my gender, but I want to feel really good about my gender. And it's like, well, 
that's actually not changing your circumstances in any way. Um, why, why are you poor? (laughs) What is this category of woman or like, what, where does that come from? And what is the purpose of it? Um, and why does being assigned to one get you farther and being assigned to the other, keep you back? Um, what do we do about that? Right. And that's where the question of power comes in. Empowerment is often used to mask, um, the role and impact of systems and who has power inside of them. So if everybody feels empowered, right, then there's nobody who's abusing power. Right. Got you. Mm-hmm. So if I can, I'm, I want to invite uh, people to go ahead and unmute and unmic yourself. And you can ask your question yourselves. So go right ahead. We'll, we can go one at a time, but let's go ahead and unmute and unmic and and go ahead and do it. So when we were talking earlier, Ms. Garza, one of the questions that came up that got repeated a couple of times that, that, that uh, you talked a little bit about, like you'd be maybe more explicit, is this, what's your thoughts about how do we raise up young people? So you, you, you're, you're in a college of education, human development. So we're, 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 we're pretty grounded around PK-12 is a lot of what the people on, the, on, on, on this call are thinking about. Yeah. But how do you raise up young people's efficacy to both be productive um, and not divisive? How do you get people to take on challenges and change in a way that is moving the whole community forward and that the efficacy that their their efforts will matter? Mm. And and if I could add to that, you know, there was also this conversation, too, that maybe divisiveness has its place as Mm -hmm. well in the process. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we are in an era where we need to pick some fights. I, um, I, I don't believe in neutrality for the sake of being neutral. Um, and I don't think it serves people to say, well, I don't have an opinion, but what do you think? No, you have an opinion and you should say what it is because as long as we don't, um, we allow a lot of atrocities to remain atrocious. Um, so I think we're in an era where we need to pick some fights. Um, they should be strategic ones, but they should be fights nonetheless. Um, I think that um, there are tools that folks need. Um, Strategy tools are big ones. I, again, spent a whole day training young people yesterday on the use of strategy and how to design it and develop it. Um, Strategy being a plan to win, right? Um, Not just the things you do to implement your plan, but like, what is your plan overall? Um, And that plan should really include an analysis of who has power and who doesn't and how you shift the balance of power. Um, I think um, young people could really benefit from the tools of organizing, Um, a lot of which I write about in my book. Um, And I wrote that book because it was a book I wish I had when I was first starting out as an organizer. And there was nothing for me to use that was contemporary. Like I was able to read stuff from you know, people doing retrospectives on the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, but there wasn't really any accounting of like how the activities of bringing people together to accomplish a goal had shifted because the landscape had shifted. Um, And I think that that's useful. Um, Organizing is useful in every single context that you can imagine. 
Um, and the last thing I would just offer is, um, I think there was a question earlier that I overheard as I was curling my hair um, about how do we understand how to develop professionals, right? Who have these values in their workplaces um, and can still kind of carry out the functions of their job, but also have a lens towards justice. And um, I think the first part is really just understanding um, how our workplaces come to be, right? Um, I talk a lot about and maybe you all have heard, you know, some of this debate around the nonprofit industrial complex. I don't talk about that, but I do talk about some of the contradictions that exist from um, trying to use corporate vehicles, right, for social change. It's wild, actually, that we do this, right? Um, but people who want to do this kind of work inside of finance or inside of other sectors. Um, often are grappling with a lot of things. Um, they're grappling with the discrepancies between what institutions say and what they do and what their impacts are. Um, they are grappling with the um, inefficiencies of how work is done. Um, you know, why can't we deliver things quicker and more efficiently? Well, sometimes it's that, you know, it just doesn't work that way, but sometimes it's actually intentional. Um, and they're also grappling with the tensions of interpersonal dynamics that reflect larger societal dynamics and not knowing how to function inside of that. Um, and it would be too long of me today to run down all of the tools that people need for that. But I think we need tools for that. Gotcha. So if folks want to raise their hand, we'll get you in. I see that John McCarthy is up next. So, John, if you could unmute yourself. Uh, both your picture and your mic, and go ahead and ask your question. Oh, thank you so much, Alicia. This is wonderful. Uh, I just had you know, to follow up on the the, the notion of empowerment um, because I think I'm I'm reaching a place where I have to rethink a lot about you know I've run a program at a high school for. Local Boston Public High School for the last 17 years. Uh, we use physical activity to engage kids, and it's a values-based approach. Um, so there's a you know there's a lot of it's kind of loaded, right? I'm the white dude walking in from the university, telling people you know that they respect effort, self-direction, and caring are important. Yep. And so now. Uh, and I'm finding this too in my teaching of graduate students as well. It's like I am I'm advocating for for certain kind of change, yeah. but uh, when you're using the word tools, I'm wondering if you have some thinking about how a person like myself, with my you know, I am the patriarchy. Why you know I am. Uh, all that, you know, kind of it's being pushed against. And so um, I'm trying to find tools for myself to be in the right place. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, I try to bring in uh, different, you know, like I brought in the MIT basketball coach last two weeks ago, who's a, yeah. a black coach and not, yeah. so it's just all decentering whiteness, but I'm just wondering if you're kind of coming across some tools for 
those people like myself who may be feeling less, I feel left, less efficacious mm-hmm. and less certain mm-hmm. of where to stand. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does. It makes so much sense. Um, first of all, can I just say thank you for the work that you do? <laughs> I don't feel like teachers or people who, you know, spend that time really get any kind of love. Um, So thank you for investing your time. You could be doing a lot of other things. Um, Secondly, I hear this question a lot. And so I want to say to you directly, lots of people are longing for the things that you're longing for. And one of the challenges, I think, is that um, unfortunately our organizations and institutions have also become insular. Um, One of my best girlfriends, who is also one of the best campaigners and strategists I know, always says to me, "Um, we have to stop being content to be the God of small things. And also, is there room amongst the woke for the waking? Um, And there are so many people who are like, I want to learn. I want to be better. And there's no answers for how you do that. So let me just offer a couple. Um, number one, keep doing what you're doing. Um, keep seeking it out. Um, lots of people get discouraged because they're nervous about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And the fact of the matter is you're totally going to say the wrong thing and you're totally going to do the wrong thing. And so just embrace it, <laughs> but learn from it and keep moving. <laughs> don't let it, um, don't let it freeze you in place. Um, I have said the wrong thing and done the wrong thing and somebody had grace with me. So my hope for you is that somebody has grace for you too. Um, you mentioned Dr. Ibram Kendi earlier, and I think he is doing some of the most brilliant work around providing tools for people to keep learning about how to undo racism. Um, and what I love about his framework, but also the tools he's developed, whether it be you know, I saw something recently on Instagram, I think about playing cards, which were basically like conversation starters, um, which I was like, that is so brilliant. Right. Or, um, you know, kids books or, um, you know, study guides for different things. Like those are tools that I think can help open up and unlock other possibilities. Um, so I would do that. Um, I would certainly keep building a community around you that is interested in the same things that you are um, so that you can learn from each other about what's working and what's not working, what the struggles and challenges are. And the last piece of advice that I would offer, um, which is a daily homework, um, is to keep pushing yourself around the why. Um, I noticed earlier that you mentioned, you're like, I am the patriarchy, right? Like I am the poster of what it is that people are fighting against. And I want to push back on that. Um, we are all shaped by patriarchy and yes, there is an image that we have in our heads of patriarchy, which is like white, able-bodied, heterosexual, Judeo-Christian men. Um, but I'm here to tell you that, you know, black women advance patriarchy, (laughs) I'm here to tell you, right, that patriarchy is everywhere. Um, And so um, why I'm making that point is not to absolve you of any responsibility. It's to say um, that right-sized responsibility looks like this. Um, What is the benefit for myself of continuing to try to dismantle these systems? I think people get themselves in trouble 
when um, they're trying to do something on behalf of somebody else and they don't see why this is good for them. And that requires some real excavation. Um, A conversation I don't think we have enough is like, why is racism bad for white people? We know a lot about how racism impacts people of color, right? And people who are not white, but we don't have like a whole study on like, how is racism harmful to white people? Um, So I would invite you to keep asking that question every day. Why is this in my best interest? So that um, it can keep unlocking places where you might want to dig in deeper. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thanks, Alicia. So my understanding is I've got to start to wrap this up. I'm going to do moderator's prerogative and ask you just the final question. What's bringing you joy right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, Being in snow um, is bringing me joy. That might be counterintuitive. And I know Boston gets its due. Yeah, we we still got it. It's freezing here today. It's like winter out there today. Yeah, we don't really get that over here. So I'm I'm like really excited about it. And um, what's bringing me joy today, I'm just remembering um, all the people that have my back. I've really needed that. And I've had a lot of people checking in on me and just um, reaffirming for me why I do this and who my peoples are. And I'm feeling really grateful for that and um, carrying that joy with me today. Oh, wow. Well, look, I got your back as much as I can. And, you know, I'm going to say I appreciate you. And that's not perfunctory. I really do. I really do. So thank you for joining us. And I want to remind everybody else who's on here to stay on because we're going to have some conversation right now as well. Alicia, an honor, a privilege. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for having me all. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy the next part of the discussion. All right. Thank you. Peace out. All right. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast has made possible the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vibes by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman. Thank you so much for listening.